This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. On the eve of the 2023 legislative session, many tax proposals are on the horizon. We talked to Tom Yamachika, head of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii, about some of those ideas. With inflation abound and talk about a recession this year, Yamachika says, hang on to your pocketbook. Governor Josh Green is already seeing signs of pushback on some of his proposals. Here's Yamachika's take. Well, it seems like Governor Green made a lot of promises, uh, including some, you know, kind of big ones. The most notable being uh, the promise to get rid of the general excise tax on food and medicine. But I think we all have to realize that the terms food and medicine are kind of fluid in that you can kind of slice and dice food a number of different ways. You can you can buy food from the supermarket. You can buy food from the restaurant. You can buy uh, food from a, a fast food joint. And the question is, are all of these going to qualify as food for purposes of the exemption? We don't know. Uh, we would have to wait until the bill comes out so we see exactly what's being proposed. I know the Republicans were jumping up and down saying, see, you know, we've been saying this for decades now and nobody would admit that this might be a good idea to help our people. But and then, you know, we're hearing, oh, maybe the the uh, leadership in the Senate and the House is saying, well, not so fast. Well, yeah, of course, the uh, the leadership in the House and the Senate, they seem to be treating uh, Governor Green as a little kid at this point. Oh, yeah, you don't really know how it works. You know, we got to teach you how, you know, what, what, what the real story is. It seems to be unlikely that they're going to take seriously any massive proposal to give lots of lots of tax relief. So faced with this, uh, you know, these tremendous headwinds, it seems like his administration people are now kind of, you know, walking back their approach. They're saying, oh, well, well, let's uh, talk about another tax rebate then. You know, Ige gave people $100 or $300 for a qualified exemption. Yeah, maybe it's time for us to do the same since we still have a little bit more money left over in the surplus column. And from where you sit, how do you like those rebates? Well, it's really a temporary solution to a permanent problem. The permanent problem is that we're, you know, very, very heavily taxed, so much so that people are leaving the state. There have been a number of commentators, including, you know, our organization, that have written about people leaving the state and why they were leaving the state. And even some news media folks, I think including yourself, who have interviewed people who are leaving the state and asked them, oh, why? And you're being told, oh, we can't make ends meet, you know, for various reasons. And I think they may not mention tax specifically, but it certainly doesn't help. The other day I saw the price of poi and it went from $8 to $16. And I just about had a cow <laughs> oh, no. uh, and sent that to a friend. And and then the next week she said, oh, my gosh, uh, it, was at a, uh, it was $21 at another store for just a, a container of poi. So, you know, it was the price of poi. You're, you're, you're scratching your head. And then, of course, the following week, I go to a big box store, and there it was for $8 again. So it, it is perplexing. And you're talking yeah, a lot poi. Of, a lot of durations of supply and demand looks like. Inflation is, is hitting everybody every which way, you know, because I haven't seen our gas prices go down. And then, you know, the city's in, in another dilemma, too. They I mean, with the real property taxes, the assessments that have gone out, those are very high. You know, and then we've got the situation with the uh, 3G going away, and now the city might have a shortfall of a million dollars because they won't have the parking fee revenue. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, how are you looking at the situation with the city? To me, the, the city's got kind of uh, the, the makings of a windfall here because they have the new round of property tax assessments, and, and they went up by double digits. And on top of that, there's the, the 3% OTAT, I think is what it's called, the Oahu Transient Accommodations Tax. That's the surcharge on the hotel room tax that each county is, can impose. And I think all the counties have up to the maximum of 3%, and I think all the all of the counties that have enacted it went to the max. So I think all of the counties said that there's a lot more money coming in from the TAT than they ever got. So those are, I think, some of the dynamics that are going to shape the budget picture at the county level. In some of those uh, neighborhoods where it went up, what is like 20%, like on the, nor on the North Shore? Yeah, you can see how people would gasp. Yeah, but then, you know, how does the city make it right and fair for most people? They have to go by 
what they call mass appraisal methods, which kind of aggregate the sales data in for a number of different situations and apply them to all properties in a, in a given an area. This is kind of like rough justice for everybody in the area, but it may not be right for different people. So if you think that your property has been over-assessed, there is the opportunity to appeal it. You, you can't go into the appeal empty-handed. You have to have you know, some expert testimony or, or other kind of evidence saying that you've been over-assessed or indicating that. There is also talk about the green fee tax. What do you think about that? Do you think that's going to go anywhere this session? The visitor green fee has it's been described uh, to me is a a charge of maybe $50 on anybody who's entering the state other than, you know, people who live here. We have uh, taken the position before that under the U.S. Constitution, you can't do it because, you know, there are Supreme Court, you know, U.S. Supreme Court cases that say, well, look, if you're a citizen of the U.S., you have the right to go everywhere in the U.S., this would seem to be contrary to uh, to that. I mean, the, the counterexamples that people cite, like, you know, Palau and the Galapagos Islands, uh, they, they're all outside of the U.S., the different the different countries. Right. So they, they don't have to follow the U.S. Constitution, but we do. We also saw lots of discussion about the uh, tax on uh, foreign owners. You know, I think uh, Canada, you know, has some form of, of that type of tax. But, yeah, and we've heard that that won't fly here. Yeah, I mean, there are certain types of charges that you can make. Like, for example, if you want to charge people a fee to go to Hanuma Bay and then you, you collect the proceeds and use them for, uh, you know, improvement of the bay, you know, that's fine. Those are called user fees. But when you kind of broaden the base so that you're actually collecting something that, you know, props up government in general and, and isn't specifically limited to you know a thing or a place or you know a specific destination or a specific program then you have a problem because then you're imposing a tax and there are rules that say like when you deal with foreign people for example people who are not US citizens only the only the federal government gets to discriminate against foreign citizens states aren't supposed to do that and then when you are talking about other people in other states we have what's called a privileges and immunities clause in our constitution as, as well as the commerce clause that basically says that you can't discriminate against people from other states. You have to treat them the same as you would your own citizens for most purposes. And for most purposes includes imposing tax. Well, I bring that up because I just was driving around the other night and was looking up at some of these high rises and, you know, they were mostly dark, you know, and you just got to wondering how many of those uh, owners of those condos, you know, actually live here and are from here or are in another country and have just opted to buy property here for investment. You know, that brings up another issue. The, uh, the, the people who are running the housing side of uh, Governor Green's administration, we're talking about something called the empty homes tax. And the way such a, a tax would work is if you own property and you don't live in it, uh, you know, how you verify that, I'm, I'm not sure, but and that may be one of the, you know, the, the, the bugaboos on, on that kind of plan, that is that you would pay a charge, you know, of a very punitive nature. But one of the problems is not the U.S. Constitution, but the Constitution of Hawaii that says, if you are going to charge somebody based on uh, usage of real property, that's the county's exclusive kulian, and the state can't mess with it. There are some counties that have been kicking the idea around of imposing an empty homes tax. Ours included, you know, sitting on the law. Right. Well, lots of possibilities, and we will see what lawmakers do, uh, both on the city side and the state side, as uh, things start to get going. So when the legislation is in session, nobody's safe. Hold on to your wallets. Okay. Thank you so much, Tom. We've been hearing from Tom Yamachika, head of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii, who was surveying the tax landscape on the eve of the 2023 legislative session. You're tuned to The Conversation here on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oho 
Queen Liliu Okalani served the Kingdom of Hawaii from 1891 to 1893 and was its last monarch. During her reign, she resisted the annexation of Hawaii by a powerful group of American businessmen led by sugar plantation owner Lauren Thurston. But on this day, 130 years ago, the queen was arrested at gunpoint and held as a prisoner in the royal residence of Iolani Palace and later tried for treason. To avoid violence and the death of her people, she gave up the throne and wrote in her autobiography, Hawaii Story, that she penned a letter to U.S. President Benjamin Harris that said, I feel that you and your government will right whatever wrongs may have been inflicted on us in the premises. While in prison, the queen wrote many mele, or songs, that spoke of what was unfolding, despite being forbidden by the Americans from reading the news of the outside world. Or so most people thought. For today's Backyard Quiz, how did the Queen read the news and who helped her in this endeavor? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. We are hearing a lot about the incoming freshman class of lawmakers at the uh, Hawaii State Legislature. Here to talk about that is HPR Sabrina Bowden. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this is one of the largest incoming freshman classes at the legislature since the 1994 election. And that's actually when House Speaker Scott Psyche was elected into his first term. So there are 16 new members in the state house and two new senators who will be sworn in on Wednesday. Kirsten Kahaloa represents House District 6. This is a new district for Kona that was reapportioned that seat used to be on Oahu. And Representative Ka'aloa says that she's excited to join her fellow Big Island lawmakers. She's advocating for greater health care access and agriculture needs, not just on Hawaii Island, but throughout the state. Our population has grown. That is seen. That is fact. And that's seen by me even getting to have a new seat and be another voice. That's an example of our population growth and access to health care on Hawaii Island and on many neighbor islands is critical. So advocating for that new hospital is important to me and very important to our community. We have a lot of agriculture in the district. Kona Coffee being the most famous and well-known agriculture, but we have a lot of other sectors in um, diversified agriculture, avocados, uh, aquaponics. We have a a lot of different types of agriculture and we have food hubs in our district and really ensuring that we support them, whether it's due to a new invasive species or pest that is bothering or, or keeping from productivity, how we look at agricultural housing, how we look at supporting workforce training for farmers, how do we focus on um, make, having more people get into farming because um, recruiting workforce for farming is also a challenge. And, so, and also supporting the brand of Kona Coffee is really important to me. So I am working on introducing a bill with some of my colleagues here in the legislature to talk about revisiting, strengthening the Kona Coffee brand. So that's good that she's an advocate for ag. Yeah, and she previously worked in higher education. She had an advocacy role on the Kona Kahola Chamber of Commerce, and she has also worked for Kamehameha Schools. And one of the hard parts about representing the neighbor islands is being away from your home district, and Kahaloa tries to incorporate as much home away from home as possible. 
for neighbor island legislators we have to spend our weekdays on oahu and we're disconnected from our communities our district our families while we're doing this work so there is some sacrifice of being far away but what that means is on weekends when we're not present in session we need to be home we need to be in our districts we need to be connecting with all of our community and um, it does take a lot of energy and sacrifice to represent a district that's on a different island but I think what we do is we carry that with us. As a new legislator, you try to bring that into your office space as well. So one of the exciting things is how do we bring the element of this district into this office space so when people from the district come and visit us they feel like they're at home and i know i talked about kona coffee earlier there's always kona coffee here in the office so that's one element of bringing what what everybody knows about our district into the space i like that serving kona coffee her coffee smells her coffee smells wonderful her office <laughs> smells wonderful and she's waiting on the artwork to come in as well and she talked about the healthcare piece and i know yeah there's been talk about expanding the Hilo hospital because they're just bursting at the mm-hmm. seams and they need those extra beds yeah and even governor josh green has already said he wants to or allocate money into the Hilo hospital 50 million dollars on Oahu, Senator Brenton Awa represents District 23, which spans the north and east sides of the island. The former TV anchor unseated Democrat Gil Riviere. He continues to report in a different way now. For example, last week, Awa used his Instagram platform to publish a story on rising rents in Waihole. He says he's already seen how more people pay attention to what he's saying. I'm not just telling a story to the public and then it falls on deaf ears and government. Now when I put something out, People around here start moving, whether it's they don't want the negative publicity or whatever it may be. In, in yesterday's case, it was the fact that they just didn't know that this was happening in Waihole. Now people are on it. That part is hard for me still to grasp. And some issues Senator Awa will be pushing for this session include housing, cost of living, and corruption. And he doesn't really see himself as a freshman. He says his communications background and reporting background adds another layer of what he may be able to accomplish. And as a Republican minority member, he's also seeing different power dynamics. And obviously we're learning a lot, but I don't feel like a freshman. If, if we talk about power... And, and some people got a lot of power, right? Like ways and means, you control the money, you're, you're in this fighting, you got, a, you, got a, you, know, you got a gun in a battle of swords. But if freshmen came in with wooden swords, I feel like I'm coming in with a lightsaber because of that journalistic background. And in just in today's day of social media and you know the governor put something out and I can comment on it or I can do my own story in the community. And the class will grow. So since Governor Josh Green appointed two sitting House reps, Ryan Yamani and Jimmy Tokioka, those seats will need to be filled. Local Democratic parties will meet to nominate three candidates for Governor Green's approval. So uh, lots of uh, new faces at the legislature when it opens tomorrow. Thanks so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR Sabrina Bowden. Uh, check out her coverage on the legislature at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, FerraroChoi.com. In Ghana, a pastor began treatment for HIV. Then he was excommunicated by his church and shunned by his colleagues. But he found a new mission to create a home for children who are orphaned and stigmatized by HIV and AIDS. They are alive, they are happy to send two to a university. And that is the greatest joy. We visit the Motherly Love Orphanage in Accra on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com.
reality check today has to do with the Hawaii State Legislature on the eve of the opening of the legislative session. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell on the line with us today. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So your headline, rocks or glass? We're talking about that pool. Yeah, this has to do with what the state describes as an unsightly and malodorous that creates people every time they come to the state capitol like they'll be coming, flocking to the capitol tomorrow morning when the legislature opens. For about a little more than a year now, those pools have been drained of the water that was in them. So what's been happening is they've been leaking, you know, into the downstairs parking, some basement offices, and they have to be drained so that the water stops leaking in there. The state wants to undertake about $33.5 million worth of work to rehabilitate this pool, uh, the pools surrounding them. And I talked to the state comptroller, Keith Reagan, late last week, and he said, you know, one of the end goals is to eventually have no water in those pools and possibly replace them with something that could simulate water, like a, like a glass, something like they have in the Hawaii State Art Museum. He says they want to be more environmentally conscious and less water and also try to find some ways that avoids uh, all those leaks that we've been seeing over the years. Oh gosh, yes. And I recall going down there to the Legislative Reference Bureau down in the basement and I was shocked to see hoses and pails, you know, they were trying to divert water as it was leaking in from the ceiling. Uh, And I, I know the clerk was telling me, oh, be careful, the carpet is all wet. So I was really kind of shocked to see just how bad it could get down there in those offices. Right. For a while now, that that hallway right outside the reference bureau, there's a big opening, there's a bucket, you know, they're trying to divert the water. And it's not just there, you know, a lot of people who spend, you know, a lot of time in the Capitol, especially during the legislative session, walking around those year after year, you notice where the leaks are in the parking garage, coming through into offices. So Reagan, the comptroller, you know, he's saying it's really time that the state found an alternative. Now, the alternative may not be quick coming uh, just yet. He said they want to put off the, the state wants to put off the work until about May after the legislative session ends to give some space and time so that's not interrupting any of the hearings and meetings that the lawmakers are having. Uh, and the Department of Accounting and General Services, they tell me it's uh, the work is expected to take about two to three years until it's finished. It's a shame that they didn't get that done during COVID when the Capitol was shut down, you know, but now they've got those big plywood barriers, you know, around the reflecting pond. And that's to keep, you know, people out and so the workers can hopefully do the work they need without creating a lot of dust and construction debris. Right, right. And just for the public knows, you know, the barriers aren't keeping people out of the Capitol. The Capitol will actually be open for all of the legislative session this year. Uh, DAGs says that the barriers are just to make sure people don't you know, fall accidentally into the pools because it's about a four-foot drop now that they're clear. But one more thing I should add, though, is that you know, the state's still looking at what the alternative will be to water. And one hurdle I guess they need to clear is they've got to cooperate with anything the State Historic Preservation Division under DLNR decides. It's considered a state monument, the Capitol, and so that office the Historic Preservation Office, you know, they'll sort of have final word on what exactly the alternative could be. But Keith Reagan said that, you know, so far they've been really cooperative and open to hearing all of their ideas. Yes, I mean, they just commemorated the anniversary of that building and when it was created, you know, way back when. Uh, And you've got to keep the architecture, you got to keep true to the architecture. So yeah, lots of things to consider. But you know, over the years, the reflecting pond has been kind of a joke because, you know, we've had fish in there, there's tilapia, uh, you know, and, and uh, it's just kind of crazy that it's just been leaking for so long. Right. And Dags actually found some younger juvenile fish in the pools when they were draining them from whoever threw them in a long time ago. Uh, they were actually released to the wild, apparently. That's according to the state. I know some time ago someone dumped tilapia. There were a few barracudas swimming around in there. <laughs> and so while some of the adults, you know, died off, there was a bunch of algae in there. According to the state, they rescued some juveniles and released them back to the wild. Okay, so yeah, the concern that uh, fish might be harmed in this process <laughs> uh, laid to rest. All right, well, thanks so much, Blaze. Hey, thanks again. We've been talking to Blaze Lovell.
to read his story, head to civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Childhood obesity rates tripled in the past generation. That's prompted new guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is the first time we're actually using really big data sets and big clinical trials to be able to advise pediatricians on how to manage pediatric obesity. But the suggestions include medicines, even surgery at ever younger ages. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care, island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. This morning, a crowd of about 2,000 was set to march from the Royal Mausoleum in Nu'uanu down to Iolani Palace in the downtown capital district. It's to mark the 130th anniversary of the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. Onipa'a, which means to hold steadfast, was said to be the motto of Queen Lili'uokalani. This morning, we talked to Eddie Halealoha Ayao, formerly of Hui Malama, now with Hui Ivi Kuamo'o. What does Onipa'a mean to you? Onipa is the Hawaiian word that means to be steadfast. It comes from the combination of two words. Oni Oni means movement, and Pa'a means firm. So to me, Oni Pa'a means focused movement. Not just move for the sake of movement, but move with intent and purpose. And share with our listeners, you know, you were one of the, I think, the co-founders of Hui Malama way back when, where you just stood up to say, hey, we need to protect our Ivi. Yeah, I wasn't one of the, the founders. That would be Edward and Pualani Kanahele of Hilo. I was a law student at the time, and Honokohua was happening on Maui. And they reached out to me to ask for help and legal advice. So I initially approached it from a legal perspective. And it, the more I got to know them, the more I realized that while having a law degree was important, having a stronger sense of Hawaiian identity was much more important. And I then studied with them. They had already established Hui Malama Ina Kupuna Ine. My job was to convince Senator Inouye to identify the organization in two federal laws, repatriation laws, the National Museum of the American Indian Act, and then the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. I guess that's what I was thinking of. Maybe you had stepped up along with Kunanin Hipali early on just to Correct. say, no, this is not right. Yes. So Uncle Ed Kanahele was the initial executive director of Hui Malama, and then he passed that torch to Kunani. And so this idea of steadfast, holding strong to your beliefs, I mean, this is kind of the core of Hui Malama. Right. So what we're holding fast to is the recognition that we have, you know, in this day and age, we talk so much about our rights that we always forget that it is our duties and responsibilities that are more important than our entitlement. And one such duty is the duty to care for those who came before you. And we know that because our ancestors referred to themselves as oivi, which literally means of the bone. So when they refer to themselves, they're referring to themselves in light of all the ancestors that came before them. And so that recognition creates a kuleana, a responsibility to care for those who came before you so that you can uh, conduct your life and then teach your descendants to do the same so that when it's your turn, they will protect your graves. And the cycle continues. Unfortunately, with the events of January 17th, 1893, that ability to do that was permanently interfered with by overthrowing our kingdom. And so what Hui Malama Ina Kupuno Hawaiine was doing was restoring the kuleana to take care of and protect the ancestral foundation. And I think the last time I saw you was at a burial council meeting, and it had to do with the lawsuit that was brought against Koihau Church and the unearthing of the Ivy there in the church cemetery. Yes. Actually, there were two lawsuits. This is, I guess, I think at the crux of some of the concern that you have with one of Governor Green's appointees for the for yes. DLNR, Department of Land and Natural Resources. Yes. 
Don Chang. So talk about why you feel so passionately that her name should be withdrawn. Because she has made decisions in the past that clearly indicates a lack of respect and understanding of the protective nature of HRS Chapter 6E. These were amendments to the Historic Preservation Law that were enacted in 1990, Act 306, and it was intended to memorialize in the law the value of protecting Ivi Kupuna by empowering the Island Burial Councils and giving them the authority to decide whether to preserve in place or relocate an unmarked Hawaiian burial site over 50 years old. The law was passed to ensure that mass disturbances would never happen again because it came about as a result of what was happening at Honokohua, Maui, and the lead-up to the development and construction of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Right, and for listeners who don't know, there were numerous sets of remains. 1,100 was the minimum number of individuals identified. So 1,100 people were dug up, ancestral Hawaiians were dug up to make way for a parking structure. So the message that sends the Hawaiian people is that the larger society views Hawaiians as being so insignificant that we prioritize a place to park a car over the burial sites of your ancestors. Fast forward to Kauai Hall Church. They were planning to build a, a church hall. A, multi, a multi-purpose center on church grounds. There was an existing building there, but they had disinterred most of the remains that were in that building footprint. And then they took that building down and expanded the footprint and disinterred, according to their archaeological consultant, an estimated 700 to 900 individuals. So Act 306 was intended to prevent such events from happening, where you couldn't disinter large amounts of people. But Koi Ha'o did so under the direct advice of Don Chang. And she was working as a consultant for the church at the time? Yes, Ku'iwalu. You had tried to raise your concerns with Governor Green early on about the appointment of Don Chang? With his, uh, his transition team, and we shared the concerns that we had and asked very respectfully that they consider someone else. And to our shock, they ignored us. And we made it clear that if we proceed, the information we're disclosing, some people might consider horrific, but that is the legacy that this person has done. And all we're doing is reporting it and asking the governor that when you choose a nominee, especially one to head the department that has Kuleana for Aina, Vai, and Kai, that that person, whoever it is, have integrity. And when I say integrity, I don't use that word lightly. I mean respect for the law, respect for values. The head of the Department of Land and Natural Resources should be someone, like Suzanne Case, who had a background of protecting the land. And Dawn's record, as we point out in our petition, has several instances where she did just the opposite. I saw the petition, and the first thing that you uh, pointed out in there is that Governor Green, during the confirmation process of another controversial appointee to DLNR, uh, Carlton Ching, that Green at the time, a senator, was the first, I think, to uh, shoot that confirmation down. Yes, and he spoke very eloquently and was quoted as saying that Carlton Ching lacked a proven record of historic natural and cultural resource protection. Like, he lacked that record, and therefore he wasn't the proper choice for Hawaii for this position. You can apply that exact quote to his current nominee. The difference is she does have a record, and it's just the opposite of care and protection for natural and cultural resources. We had her on the show and uh, asked her about uh, those points, and she was basically saying that, you know, there's two sides to every story, and that she did not try to be uh, an advocate for these developers. She was just trying to lay the path out of options, you know, whether uh, at Kauai Hau, uh, the the definition of a cemetery allowed for the uh, digging up of the EV. I don't know, how do you respond to that? With the decision of the Intermediate Court of Appeals, which rebuked all of those arguments and said it held William Isla as chairman of the LNR liable for violating the LNR's own rules on the treatment of burials. Uh, the court also held or, or stated, indicated that the director of the Department of Health had also violated her rules with regard to the treatment because the church got a blanket disinterment permit from the Department of Health to dig up all the burials. But the most clearest rebuke of, what, of Don's um, advice to the Board of Trustees of Kauai Church 
is the Intermediate Court of Appeals said that HRS Chapter 60 applies at Kwaiaha'o and that the advice to circumvent the authority of the Oahu Island Barrow Council under uh, HRS Chapter 60 was wrong as a matter of law. So the important part is that the legal advice she gave was rebuked. I mean, she arranged for a private meeting with SHBD officials to discuss the idea of not having to do an archaeological inventory survey. The court said that was the, that was the violation that was of their own rules, that they should have, before SHBD issued the permit for that, that project, that they sh- the LNR should have had uh, an AIS completed and, and approved they didn't. So the court ordered the AIS to be approved, and then they ordered the matter to go to the Oahu Island Barrow Council to be considered by the council for a determination. Now, mind you, the, the church already dug out all the EV, but the court is saying, start anew, and one of the options that the council has is the option to save, to determine, to preserve in place, which means you got to put them all back exactly where you took them from, um, which is ultimately what the court determined. And then in June of 2022, the Oahu Island Barrow Council approved the joint barrow treatment plan that was submitted by the church and the descendants. And that plan called for preservation in place of most of the remains. There are a few that was asked to be relocated back into the original burial area. But the point is the Oahu Island Barrow Council determined to preserve in place, which means that if they had followed the law originally, those kupuna need not have been dug up but they were. They're still in the basement at Koyahatwa Church, and they've not been reburied. This is 13 years later. We've been hearing from Eddie Halealoa Ayao of Hui Iwi Kuomo'o, who started a petition against the appointment of Don Ching as head of the Board of Land and Natural Resources. Ayao says he plans to meet with the Green Administration about his concerns later this week. Now it's time for the Backyard Quiz Answer. Today is the 130th anniversary of the overthrow and imprisonment of Hawaii's last monarch, Queen Liliuokalani. After being arrested for treason by the leaders of the Committee of Safety, the queen was imprisoned and cut off from nearly all communication. On this day in 1893, the chair of the committee, Henry E. Cooper, addressed a crowd in front of Iolani Palace and read aloud a proclamation that formally deposed Queen Liliuokalani, abolished the Hawaiian monarch, and established a provisional government under President Sanford B. Dole. But while locked away, the queen, the queen continued to write songs about the overthrow and about how things were changing, even though the provisional government restricted her access to newspapers. So how did she, under house arrest at Iolani Palace, keep up with current events? Queen Lili Ookalani was regularly sent flowers by the Wilson family from their gardens, now known as the Garden Cemetery of Uluhai Malama. She would receive the flowers wrapped in newspaper, allowing her to read up on what was happening around the island, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. But we had no winners today. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Aloha, this is Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. Join me for a live taping of The Splendid Table on January 18th at the Hawaii Theater in Honolulu. I'll be talking with Maui chef Sheldon Simeon about the many ways Native and immigrant communities have and are shaping Hawaii's food landscape. Get your tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Co-presented by HPR and the Culinary Institute of the Pacific. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student with a kindergarten to grade 12 admissions open house January 21st. Registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org.
do we make tourism in Hawaii more sustainable? That's an issue lawmakers, community leaders, and residents have been wrestling with in recent years. The pause in our tourism industry during the pandemic only highlighted the need to lessen the impact of our largest industry on our environment and resources while still generating the revenue that is important to our economy. One hotel on Kauai is hoping to lead the way in being more sustainable. John Gersandi is the general manager of the new One Hotel Hanalei Bay by Starwood, which manages Sheraton and Weston resorts in our islands. Gersandi sat down with the Conversations Russell Subiano recently to discuss setting the regenerative tourism standard in Hawaii. What are some of the biggest visitor issues the hotel industry has been working on Did I say that, that right? Starwood wanted to address when putting together One Hotel Hanalei Bay? Well, I, I do know that HTA and the government and residents, you know, are calling out for, to use your term, to you know, regenerative tourism, right? And emphasizing, you know, educating the visitors about the local culture and the importance of taking care of the natural resources that is obviously so precious in Hawaii. There's been many initiatives put forth by HTA and uh, Kauai Visitors Bureau as well. And reflecting back a year and a half or so ago when I came on board and reading about number one, what the state was doing. Some of it was already in, in place, but then obviously COVID seemed to have highlighted that and a little bit more and allowed everyone that was living here at the time to really understand, you know, the, the precious resources and, and seeing certain areas starting to come back, whether it's, you know, the Hanama Bays of the world or, or other areas, you know? So, um, you know, I, again, and, Maybe step back just a little bit, but you know a little bit about our, our our company and the philosophy of our company. I mean, we're a mission-driven luxury lifestyle hotel brand that is all about inspiring change. I think you probably know that, but you know, really focus on from a global position, focus on protecting not the environment, supporting the you know the people in the communities most especially. And then as as we grow and our company grows, trying to grow as mindfully and transparently as possible, if that makes sense. So, you know, you take those overall corporate goals and then you kind of factor those into the whole regenerative tourism and it's just such a perfect match. It's pretty exciting to see what you guys have done with the hotel, not just in the items that are in the hotel, but also in terms of philosophy, the way you guys want to run your hotel and the things that you offer your guests. And you were just talking about Hawaiian culture And I know that one of the big issues that many Native Hawaiians and Hawaii residents have had in recent years is this kind of seeming lack of knowledge of Hawaii or lack of respect for Hawaiian culture by some visitors, not all, but some. We've seen videos on social media of visitors, you know, messing with monk seals or getting knocked over by powerful waves. And some people have said that we should make cultural education mandatory or or at least make it available to visitors as a solution to stemming these these kinds of, of actions by some of the people that come and visit. Can you talk about some of the cultural activity programming offered by your hotel and why you guys felt it was important to offer it? The programming piece for us, we felt, felt was a really great way to really immerse the guests into it and educate them, you know, truly how special it is. I mean, I, I personally believe the the visitors that come to Kauai are a little bit different, and a lot of them appreciate nature a lot. They all come to, to lay on the beach, and they want to be immersed in the environment. And then again, coupled with the uniqueness of, of the North Shore of Kauai, you know, I think it's a big part of it. I mean, so we're we're offering a, a, a large variety of programming centered in, well, it's all centered around the destination and, and mind and movement and uh, outdoor pursuits, food and beverage, and educate, educating the, you know, our visitors on, on sustainability along the way for, for each of those. And whether it be nature series that showcase art or the like. But uh, we believe that there's a there's certainly a draw for that. We believe that people that come to Kauai, you know, that's what they appreciate. And quite frankly, there's just so many things to talk about. You know, Kauai, and again, the island as a whole is such a unique and special place that we know our, our customers and, and guests are going to just love what we have to offer. And the programming piece for for us is quite vast. We have many, many different pillars of programming, you know, whether it's Spa and Wellness, which is, again, a, a big part of what we're going to be doing here. Food and Beverage has a whole pillar. Our activities, outdoor pursuits, whether that's ocean or, or, or land events, we have a, a vast amount of art programming and art through an artist in residence program. 
and even our child educational programs, right, are going to be quite fast. I mean, we're partnering with it with a large list of local nonprofits as well, and we're ensuring that the nonprofits are involved, and they, that they come up here and they're part of the educational process, right? So not only will we bring in many of these nonprofit environmental supporters up here, but we'll be taking many of our guests to their destinations all over the island, but most especially focused on the North Shore. I noticed that about your hotel as well, is that you have a lot of community partners that are not just nonprofits, but you have a lot of community partners that are businesses, local businesses that that produce local product. You know, I have a lot of family that are in the hotel industry in, in various jobs. I know in some past instances, hotels have kind of been sort of a silo in the community, sometimes in location, sometimes with participation, sometimes both. But your hotel has this long list of partners. Can you talk about how fostering partnerships and relationships with the community benefits both parties? Whether it's in food and beverage, whether it's in spa, whether it's in activities, the amount of local options that are up here and the amount of wonderful product that is up here. I mean, why would anyone look outside the area of the North Shore when there's so much greatness up here? Yeah, at the top of mind, whether it's working with Hobbs Tea or Forty Kite Farms or Jerry's Rice Farm or Kauai Juice Co. or Kauai, you know, B Team, a lot of Kauai, and it's just the list goes on and on. And you know, partnering, I think you use that word, is so so important. Creating relationships, creating trust, working together, trying to help them and educate our our, our guests. I mean, what could what could be a better match? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up on the Big Island, and the hotels that are most familiar to me are the ones on that Kohala coast. And just from an outside view, you know, they're kind of isolated from the larger community. But as population has started to expand and more people have have moved to the Big Island, I can see that they are closer. They're moving closer and closer to to communities. And I, I like this idea that one hotel, Hanalei Bay, is really integrated into the community and in partnerships in a, in a bunch of different ways. You know, sometimes when words like local or organic or sustainable, sometimes those words kind of come with an extra cost, an extra cost to build or an extra cost to buy. Your hotel is a luxury resort. How does sustainable and regenerative style of hotel operation how does that impact your bottom line, both short-term and long-term? Well, you're you're absolutely right. It does impact. I mean, you know, and that's I, I, maybe one of the reasons why so many other organizations are reluctant to go down that road because it, it, it costs more to be sustainable, you know, not having, you know, plastics and unnecessary paper. For instance, we just got a, a new cup. All of our uh, cups are, are made of steel, you know, and we even debated on whether we should go with aluminum cups, which are, of course, 100% recyclable or steel. We went with steel because it, it was so much better for steel, right? Uh, lasts forever, actually. Uh, in the coffee shop, I mean, we'll be using any, any papers that we use, of course, will all be compostable, but we're trying to even go beyond that and using glass for almost everything we use. And, and hope you know, hopefully people will bring the glass back. But if they don't, you know, again, it'll still be sustainable. But either, but there is certainly a cost with it, you know, but it's a, it's a cost that, you know, I mean, we have one environment and certainly worth it. And the type of guests we're going to be attracting here, you know, it's consistent with their beliefs as well. And, and you know, it's, a, it's a trend that's, that, that lasts. I mean, you know, you mentioned Big On. I was in Big On also for a long time. We probably know a lot of the same people. But in the hotels there, they, I, I agree, they're starting to in, in bring the community in. But we're doing it from the very beginning. You know, the partnerships and, and the givebacks, as we call it, the community beach cleanups and all these others. You know, we're starting from the beginning. We, we've already done a, a large number of these givebacks, as we say. And they'll be ongoing every single month. So we're looking forward to it. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, just about the concept of sustainability and, and regenerative tourism. But you guys are making a very concerted effort to do it. Your hotel opens on February 15th. What's the thing you're most excited to share with the Kauai community and with visitors? Oh, boy, that's a loaded question. There's just so there's so much that we want to share. I mean, the sustainability piece, we've talked a lot about it. That's obviously unique and different. You know, us working in, in parallel with the community and, and, and understanding that, that locals are welcome and that 
We want them to see the resort and be a part of the resort. I think many people that are familiar with the facility are going to be amazed at the changes that, that have taken place. I mean, part of our company's philosophy is really to bring the outdoors in. And boy, boy, have we done that. The physical changes that have taken place, you know, from before till now are quite amazing. I mean, we, the building, the lobby used to be indoors. The roof is gone and it is now outdoors. So we have truly brought outdoors to every space in, in the hotel, which I think people will find amazing. But Again, it's, there's just so much that we, we're, we're excited to share. You know, our food and beverage products are going to be unique and different. Again, not only based on sustainability, but the venues itself will be so unique and different. You know, we added two swimming pools and we, you know, we're all excited for the unveiling on, on February 15th. Thank you very much for your time, John. I appreciate it. Russell, indeed. That was John Gersandi, One Hotel Hanalei Bay General Manager, talking regenerative tourism and sustainability in the hotel industry with HPR's Russell Subiono. The new Kauai Hotel is set to open to guests on February 15th. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we turn our attention to Mona Ala, the Royal Mausoleum, and the upkeep of the tombs at the cemetery. Got feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard? Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation. 